Hey there, listeners. I'm working on a special mailbag episode where I answer your questions. If you have anything you'd like to ask me, just send me an email, sam at kitchentablemagic.org. I'll read all your questions on air in a future episode. Thanks. Kitchen Table Magic is presented by Hipsters of the Coast. Hipsters of the Coast is the premier news and strategy blog for the Magic the Gathering community. Read up on insightful columns written by an expert team of Magic insiders. There's something for everyone. Discussion about legacy, commander, preview cards from the new set, and more. Go to hipstersofthecoast.com for news and strategy and all of your favorite formats. That's hipstersofthecoast.com. Kitchen Table Magic is brought to you by Card Kingdom. With fast shipping, the best sleeves, deck boxes, binders, and all the modern legacy and commander staples you could ever want, Card Kingdom is there with the hookup. If you'd like to support the show, just use our affiliate link, cardkingdom.com slash KTM when you shop. Kitchen Table Magic is brought to you by Paragon City Games. They're a community-focused game store in Draper, Utah that cares deeply about their player base. Tune in to watch their live paper and moto streams at twitch.tv slash Paragon City Games for daily legacy action. All right. How are you doing, Sam? I'm doing fantastic. Thanks so much for taking a little bit of time to talk to me on this podcast. I figure uh, your project wouldn't really be complete if I wasn't involved with White, right? (laughs) That's correct. (laughs) Let's do a sound check question. Craig, what did you have for breakfast today? I had a apple carrot ginger juice. That's pretty awesome. So why juice? (laughs) Why not just eat those solid foods solid? Um, I kind of got into juicing uh, a few years ago, and I don't do it as often as I probably should, but it's a way to get a lot of nutrients in the morning without sort of overloading yourself by eating a ton of food. So it's just something I kind of got in the habit of doing. Welcome to Kitchen Table Magic, a storytelling podcast featuring the amazing people of the Magic the Gathering community. I'm your host, Sam Tang. Join me and my guests as we share stories about what MTG means to us, how we got started playing Magic, the ups, the downs, the hilarious stories, and everything in between. In this episode, I'm speaking with the champion of White Weenie, Craig Wesco. Craig is a legendary competitor who's been playing on the Pro Tour ever since he was a teenager. Craig rolled with the old school players and decided to play Magic professionally after teaching philosophy at the university level. Craig's understanding of critical thinking makes him a deep learner and a fierce competitor. Craig has been writing Magic strategy content for years and recently published his millionth word online. Craig also shares with us his personal philosophy on his Christian faith, veganism, and the stewardship he has towards other people, animals, and the earth. Craig also tells us about his thoughts on the color white of the MTG color pie. I hope you enjoy my interview with the champion of the savannah, Craig Wesco. Hey everyone, thanks for joining me on Kitchen Table Magic. I'm your host, Sam Tang, and today I'm here with the illustrious Craig Wesco. Craig, how's it going? Good, how are you? (laughs) I'm doing fantastic. Thank you so much for being here today. Welcome. And where are you joining us from? I live just north of New York City in a town called Yonkers. And how often do you get to go into New York? Uh, Whenever John Finkel has a booster draft at his house, 
So I don't know, maybe once every three months, whenever a new set comes out. <laughs> That's actually pretty awesome. You know what? I think you're like maybe the first or second person I have ever spoken to that just says, whenever John Finkel has a booster draft, and basically you get to go, that's pretty awesome. Who else gets to go to these uh, sweet booster drafts with you and John Finkel? You know, some of the old school players in New York, pretty much anyone who's on the mailing list or friends with John. That's pretty awesome. Wow, I am so jealous. Well, (laughs) thank you so much for being here, Craig. I wanted to talk to you today about your life as a pillar of the Magic the Gathering community. And like all things, I just wanted to start at the beginning. Where did you grow up and how did you find Magic? So, I... I started playing Magic when I was around 13 years old, and I started when I was living in Nashville, Tennessee. And basically, my brother and I just bought a a starter deck. He bought a starter deck of 4th edition. I bought a starter deck of Ice Age. And we just kind of learned how to play. We found a local store that sold singles, and we started buying singles, adding like Singer Vampires and Sarah Angels and stuff to our decks. And it just kind of, once I found tournaments... Uh, I kind of got hooked, and I like the the competitive aspect. I like the social aspect, and I like the the challenge of deck building and sort of the creativity of it. That's really cool. When did you decide to start becoming more competitive and enter the pro scene? Uh, the pro scene it was kind of a gradual thing where I started playing in local tournaments, and then once I started doing well in local tournaments, I found out about pro tour qualifiers and started traveling to those. And then once I finally qualified for the Pro Tour, I I think I lost and I failed to cash my first, I don't know, however many. It seems like endless amount of Pro Tours I played in as like a teenager, maybe like eight or nine, and I never did well at them. But then once I finally started doing well on the Pro Tour, uh, I managed to kind of stay gold or better. And uh, for me, I guess it was kind of a stepping stone type thing where you just kind of gradually play in bigger and bigger tournaments and you start doing poorly in them, but then you get better and you start uh, doing better at those tournaments. So I guess for me, it was kind of a gradual process. Was there a distinct level up moment in your magic career that you felt you're like, wow, I'm pretty good at this game? So I guess everybody sort of has a a few of those. Uh, I have two that came to mind. The first one was when I, I won my very first local tournament. I was playing a deck of my own design. It's like a green-black Storm Cauldron Fast Bond Drain Life deck. It was like a combo deck that you could go to negative life with the Fast Bond, and you keep replaying the same swamp and get like a bunch of black mana and then drain life the opponent, gain it all back and kill them. And it was like really, I was really proud that I built my own deck and won the tournament, and I won a Mox Pearl. This was a long time ago, back when Mox Pearl was like $100. <laughs> so that, that, that was when I started kind of getting the fire and kind of like, wow, I can actually win a tournament. Uh, and then another sort of level up moment for me, I mentioned that I, I failed to do well in the first eight or nine Pro Tours I played in. Um, toward the end of those, I was sitting at a table. This is back when John Finkel and Kai Bud were like dominant on the Pro Tour, always winning. And I was sitting at a table on day two, like I, I think I failed to make day two. And Tom Gwevin, who was a pro player at the time, I was talking to him and I'm like, how are these John Finkel and like Kai Bud, how are they winning all the time? And like, I can't even make day two. What, what is it? Like, I, I feel like I don't make mistakes when I play. Yet, how are they always doing well? And I'm not. And he's like, oh, you don't make mistakes? I was like, yeah. So he just like draws a random seven card hand from his 
this was invasion block or something. And he draws a random hand from his deck and it was a blue white deck. And he's like, well, all right, what's your play with this hand? I was like, all right, you play Adarkar Waste and Pass, or Island and Pass, I guess. And he's like, all right, your opponent plays Forest, Birds of Paradise, go. What do you do? I'm like, well, end step, you cast Opt. And he's like, why? I was like, what do you mean, why? Like, you have a blue mana up and you have Opt in your hand, you cast it. And he's like, well, what are you trying to find? And the hand had like three lands, a couple counter spells, an Opt, and I think a Factor Fiction. And I was like, well, I guess you want the fourth land for the Factor Fiction. He's like, well what if you draw another land in your next three draw steps? Wouldn't you rather have an opt rather than a fifth land? I was like, whoa, I'd never even thought about that before. You're totally right. I would. And he's like, and you're more than likely going to draw a land in your first three draws, right? My mind was just blown. Just because I had the mana to cast a spell and like you typically would cast your instant at the opponent's end step, I was just mechanically doing these things without really knowing why. And so it just kind of caused me to see the game in a whole new way. It's kind of interesting how Opt is now a reprint. <laughs> so now everybody can experience that same enlightening moment that I experienced. <laughs> <laughs> wow, what an amazing story. I think it's just so eye-opening that a player of your caliber and history and experience with the game found, I guess you could say, not success in the first eight or nine Pro Tours. And then you speaking with a veteran player and then talking about these lines of play, you've deepened your understanding. That's incredibly fascinating. Yeah, but back then, uh, keep in mind, I was a teenager and uh, I was playing Magic in Tennessee which there, I mean, there, there are some decent players, but this was kind of before the internet was a big thing and before Magic was as big as it is now. So information didn't kind of, it was harder to come by. So the, the groups in New York and the groups in Los Angeles and some of the groups in various parts of Europe just had such a leg up on everyone else in the world because they would play together and come up with the good decks and get better as players. And so it was a real struggle for someone like me who is a teenager without connections growing up in the, the Southeast. So now I think it's a little easier for somebody to pick up their game with like Magic Online and you have like all sorts of articles and videos and streams and stuff you can watch. So there's just way more resources now uh, than there were back then. Yes, absolutely. The amount of Magic the Gathering theory and content and practice resources have just exploded in the last few decades. And uh, not too long ago, you recently wrote your millionth words for Magic the Gathering strategy content online. That's correct. <laughs> you are quite a prolific writer. How did you get started with that? I think I wrote a few like random articles a long time ago, but really I had my, my start as a professional writer after I top-aided Pro Tour San Diego in 2010. That's where Star City Games offered me a position as a writer, and so I started writing a strategy column, and then they needed a, a finance writer, and they asked me if I would do that, so I said yes. So I actually had two columns for Star City, and then about a, a year later, I got hired by tcgplayer.com, and I've been with them for the past seven or so years now. <laughs> wow, that's incredible. And you've covered topics all the way from strategy to finance to set reviews. I mean, you really write about everything. Yeah, especially white creatures, but, you know, <laughs> some other things as well every now and then. Yes. Now, Craig, this is so interesting because you are so well known 
for writing about white weenie, white strategies, white creatures. I mean, your Twitter handle is Brimaz for life. Yet, ironically, you started off playing a green-black drain life deck. Yeah, well, uh, I, I guess the story goes a little further back. My very first tournament was actually a fourth edition sealed deck tournament. I went to the tournament and I opened up a Savannah Lions, which was like one of the best white creatures in the game at that point. Just a 2 1 for 1. And uh, I opened it and I didn't play with it in my deck, even though I was playing white, because we were playing for Ante and I didn't want to lose my Savannah Lions in Ante. So I kept it out of my deck so I wouldn't lose it. So then I could put it in my in my constructed deck after the tournament. <laughs> wow, that's crazy. Back then when people were still playing for Ante, did you lose anything while playing for Ante back in the day? Oh, I'm, I'm sure I did. I don't even remember. I'm sure I lost a lot of good stuff. <laughs> It's so interesting because uh, fast forward a little bit more through your magic career, you played magic professionally ever since you were a teenager, but you somehow got into university and you even taught at the university level critical thinking. Yeah, I was in a philosophy uh, graduate program. And so I taught some courses in critical thinking and ethics and intro to philosophy, some things like that. And that's actually what I was doing when I kind of had my break as a as a pro player and I kind of had an opportunity to go all in with magic and just play magic professionally and write about magic. And so I actually dropped out of a philosophy of science PhD program to pursue professional magic. I thought it was just going to be like a, a one or two year thing. I just wanted to see how good I could be at magic if I devoted all my time to it. And I guess this is now my 10th consecutive year as a pro magic player. So one or two years ended up turning into 10 years. <laughs> That's very cool. Who knows how long it'll last, but <laughs> one year at a time, I guess. <laughs> yes, one year at a time. That is so interesting. Critical thinking definitely plays a big role in playing magic. Have you found yourself applying any of these thought processes that you've been studying into magic? Certainly something like symbolic logic, which is another critical thinking related course that I taught. Even though you've been doing, say, symbolic logic for years and years, every time I come back to it, I have to sort of rehash it. It's almost like exercising. You have to kind of get your mind up to speed. And otherwise, you know, just like if you stop working out your your physical muscles, then they'll start deteriorating and you'll have to, you know, start back and kind of pick up to where you were. And so if I apply these things to to magic, there, there's a lot of logic, especially I've written some articles on this, like multi-level thinking, where it's not just about, well, how can I most efficiently use my mana to cast my spells? Or, okay, your, my opponent has a creature, I need to kill it, something like that. But you also have to think, okay, what is my opponent thinking? And then what does my opponent think that I'm thinking? about what my opponent's thinking. And sometimes that can really play into decisions that aren't super obvious. Then you have to think about what kind of cards the opponent could have, what kind of cards could they draw, what cards could I draw, and using a lot of percentages, like, okay, well, what are the odds that I draw a land in the next few draw steps, things like that. So it, it was good to just kind of get that sort of rigorous, critical attitude of thinking sort of deeply ingrained in me. So that whenever I play magic, uh, even if I'm not doing syllogisms and whatever while I'm playing, it's still thinking along those lines where you have to think logically and think using statistics and things like that. And that can be really advantageous when you're playing. 
there's a lot of information and a lot of things to consider in a game of Magic, what would you say are some of the most important things for competitive players to be thinking about during a competitive match? So you want to be focusing on the things that, that matter the most. So a lot of people, I think, are focusing on spending a lot of resources focusing on things that aren't really relevant to winning the match. So they're thinking, oh, this is unlucky that I didn't draw the card I needed. Or, wow, I'm like, so, like, I drew this card that I, that helps me so much in this board position. I'm going to cast it. And they're not thinking about, well, what, how could things go wrong? Or how can I get myself out of this position despite this bad luck? And those are the things that you really should focus on. You should always be focusing on what's my avenue to win this game. So one of the things that I sort of pride myself on um, that uh, I, I sort of don't even notice it when I'm playing because I'm sort of in that zone. But then I have people point it out to me afterwards. And then I'll be like, wow, yeah, you're right. I, I wasn't even thinking about that. I'll be so focused on trying to win the game that I, I don't even realize how bad things are looking for me during a game. They'll be like, wow, I can't believe you pulled out that game. And it's just like, yeah, that was a close game. Or they'll be like, you know, I, I thought you were just dead like five turns ago. I, I would have just conceded. But somehow you like stuck it out and found this line to like, you know, get out from Ulamog, Karn and like, you know, whatever else. And it's just like, yeah, well, you just have to constantly think, what are my ways to win this game? And sometimes it comes down to, well, my only way to win is if the opponent has nothing left and I draw the best card I need from my deck. So you just have to play as if that's going to happen. And then, you know, 99% of the time it doesn't happen. But the one time it does is the time that you, you win instead of lose because you, you played to your out. And that's something that's really important that a lot of people sort of, they don't spend enough time thinking about. They just sort of win the games they're supposed to win and lose the games that they're supposed to lose. But then they don't win the games that they're supposed to lose because they're not thinking about how can I pull this out. That is a very fascinating way of thinking. It's also a very high level, very competitive way of thinking, not giving up and squeezing out every single one of those percentage points. And also not giving away when you're 99% to win. When you're really far ahead, uh, you also don't want to give your opponent a chance to come back from the clutches of defeat. So you want to be just as careful when you're very far ahead. Craig, tell us, why White Weenie? Why have you been so focused on the prevalence of creatures in white? Uh, I think it, it sort of, it offers a lot of things that really nothing else offers. So the color white, nowadays, things sort of change a little bit with uh, design philosophies. But over the years, white has been the color that has the best aggressive creatures. So you get the most bang for your buck out of your early creatures, your one mana, your two mana, your three mana creatures. Instead of like the green creatures, maybe they're a little bigger, but the white creatures have more abilities, more protection, maybe they have protection from black, or they have first strike, or they have flying. And so there's a lot of ways to to utilize the early creatures. And depending on what decks and spells the opponents are playing, uh, you can kind of customize your deck to where if the if the metagame is full of, say, red decks, you can play creatures that are protection from red or damage prevention type of, of cards. And then also with white, you get the ability to really deal with any kind of permanent, uh, which none of the other colors can really do. 
So you can deal with artifacts and enchantments, just like, say, green can, but green can't really deal with creatures as well as white can. So white has cards like Banishing Light and uh, Oblivion Ring and stuff like that that can just deal with like pretty much any permanent. And so I like the versatility of white because I like having a game plan against sort of everything, whatever my opponent is doing, so I can adapt and adjust and, you know, not be just dead to, to something. And then I also like being able to apply pressure early and not just pressure in the sense of like this really aggressive, fast creature that just attacks and blocks. I like my creatures to be able to do things and for me to make decisions involving my creatures. Something like, oh, all my opponents are playing Liliana of the Veil. Well, I want to play something like Doom Traveler or Thraben Inspector as sort of the natural thwart to that card. So it's like I'm still playing these creatures on curve, but I can pick my creatures uh, based on what the opponents are doing. So I feel like I'm sort of crafting a game plan against everyone, but there's a lot of thought that goes into selecting which of those creatures and which of those spells go in my deck. And then white also tends to have the best sideboard cards, and I like being able to uh, sideboard very potent cards for all the different matchups. So you get like really good graveyard hate, really good um, anti-artifact stuff in your in your white sideboard. And so that's the kind of deck that I like to play, a deck that can sort of curve out with creatures, but creatures that do things other than just attacking and blocking and have spells that can kind of deal with any type of permanent, whatever the opponent's doing. So I just really like the, the versatility of white uh, and what it provides. That's really fascinating when you speak to any professional magic player who has gone really deep into one color. One thing that I often hear is praise for that color, being able to do everything. Do you ever feel that white as a color identity, there, there's something that maybe it doesn't do? Like, like any color, there are some shortcomings. With white, it has some difficulties dealing with hexproof, for one, outside of a, a spell like Wrath of God. Um, sometimes you could sacrifice an opposing attacking creature, things like that. It's also not very good at drawing cards. So blue is kind of the card draw color. Uh, there's not a lot of ways to draw cards and not even a ton of ways to gain card advantage with white. Um, it seems like w whenever there's a white card advantage card, they, they end up banning it or stop printing it, like Armageddon or Stoneforge Mystic, things like that. They're like, oh, that's too good. <laughs> But we still have things like, I guess, Squadron Hawk and Spectral Procession and stuff like that. So we're not completely in the dark when it comes to drawing cards and card advantage. But that tends to be the weakness of white is that it's hard to, to gain that sort of card advantage that some of the other colors do. You talked a little bit earlier about the change in game design. It seems that card advantage these days are translated into Planeswalker permanence. All of the white Planeswalkers are really solid. Yeah, there's been some good ones. Gideon and Elspeth, there's been some some nice ones there. Um, some of them cost a little more than I like to play. It's like six mana for an Elspeth is a little much. Um, some of the Ajani Planeswalkers uh, are good at interacting in combat, like giving your creatures bonuses, but they're not very good at playing defense a lot of the time. Uh, I kind of like my, my spells to be able to play offense or defense, so that if I'm behind, being behind doesn't snowball, or instead I want my cards to catch me back up. So Elspeth is usually pretty good at that. Gideon's pretty good at that. 
So those are kind of my jam. I mean, I like Ajani, don't get me wrong. Uh, Ajani Vengeant, really cool. Um, but some of the, the Ajani's have been kind of, I don't know, a little, a little too offensive and lacking defense for, for my taste. Craig, how would you say that the white section of the color ply has changed over the years with game design? Okay, that's a good question. Um, there, there's a few things that stand out to me. Uh, one is that originally the, the sort of white ability was banding. Right, banding was was part of the color philosophy, where all the creatures would cooperate together and band together, whether they're attacking or blocking. And when they're banded together, it's sort of a greater force to be reckoned with. And they would sort of protect each other, almost like looking out for each other when they enter into combat together. That ended up being a too confusing of a mechanic, understandably. Um, so they got rid of it. it. It doesn't feel like they really replaced it with anything. They just kind of took that away from white okay, so now white just lost part of its identity. And then another thing that kind of I noticed happen over the years, uh, white had a lot of like, white is kind of the protection color. It's it's about healing and being able to prevent the opponent from, from doing things, especially to your creatures um, and also to you. So they had cards like white knight, those protection from black. And then they started giving white other protection, like silver knight, protection from red, and because those were kind of the enemy colors of white. For whatever reason, they decided to make protection a sort of evergreen type of mechanic, where all the colors were getting protection from their enemy colors. You had like uh, green creatures with protection from blue, and you had blue creatures with protection from red, and red creatures with protection from white. Originally, the only non-white creature with protection was Black Knight having protection from white, that was just kind of a, like, to counterbalance the white knight. It was like the white knight versus the black knight. It was kind of a flavor thing. But really, the protection was just, you know, a white sort of mechanic. And then after a while, they, for whatever reason, they decided that protection from a color just wasn't a thing that they wanted to pursue once it was this evergreen mechanic. And so they kind of stopped doing that. But what they did, they, they took something from white and gave it to everyone and decided they didn't want everyone to have it. So then they took it away, but they didn't just give it back to white. They just took it away from everyone. So now white kind of lost its protection from enemy colors and it lost its its banding. And like now it also lost things like Armageddon as its way to deal with really big things for, like whenever White Weenie would deal with some like really big Lord of the Pit deck or something originally, well, I can't really deal with that sort of thing outside of Swords to Plowshares. And so our answer to that was to just Armageddon so that you're forced to play with few resources, just like I am. Like I can't let you just develop all your resources, but now Armageddon wasn't fun. And so they just cut that out of the game. So now white doesn't really have a replacement answer to decks that just want to accumulate a bunch of resources and cast really big spells. And so there's a lot of sort of design philosophy elements that I feel like white has kind of gotten shortchanged. And even the the identity of having the best small creatures with all the, the abilities, like before, white had their two drop was like white knight. It, had, it was a 2-2 two, two for 2 with first strike and protection from black. And red, in comparison, like it had a bunch of burn spells that fireballs, lightning bolts and such, but it didn't have a lot of good early creatures. Their best 2 drop was like iron claw orcs, which is a 2-2 two, two for 2 with a drawback. But now it's like the red creatures are just as good as the white creatures early. So you have like Goblin Guide and Eidolon of the Great Revel. And it's like, well, those are every bit as good as the best one and two drop white creatures. 
So I kind of feel like white kind of lost its edge in that aspect as well. And now even like green can can kill enchantments. Uh, I guess it had tranquility before and it had crumble, which is, you know, it's okay. Uh, it, it just feels like white is kind of, you know, well, what, what, what are we going to leave you with as a white mage? You know, you're kind of, everyone else is getting their stuff and you're taking things away from me. Well, not me per se. All right, me. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, I feel like some of those things I would like to see come back. Uh, maybe not banding specifically, but sort of give white its protection elements and give it the best early creatures again, like it used to be, and give it ways to interact to stop the opponent from casting really big spells. If it's not Armageddon, have it be something, you know? What do you think the future is in store for white as a color identity? Well, hopefully they continue to print really interactive creatures. So I'm not a big fan of creatures that all they do is attack and block. Even if it means, let's say, uh, they have some sort of ability that's relevant, like a, a protection from ability, some activated ability, or some ability that triggers upon uh, entering the battlefield or leaving the battlefield. I like my creatures to to have decisions be made, and not just decisions whether to attack or block, but also decisions on whether to enter into combat or whether to use their non-combat ability, and also decisions of deck building. Like, should I put this creature in my deck based on what I expect my opponents to be doing? I feel like a lot of the creatures specifically they're, they're very mechanical, where they, they have a, a mechanic that's part of the set, and they say, okay, well, we're going to be tribal, like tribal vampires or tribal humans or whatever. So the, de- the deck kind of builds itself, and you just have to play with all of the vampires or all of the humans, and you don't really have any choices in deck building. Um, I don't like that. And I also don't like when all you're doing is giving a creature like making it a a white, white one for a two, two double strike with some, whatever the mechanic is, whether it's, what is it? The, the soul bound or give it the, uh, one where when you target it, it gets plus one, plus one, got the name of it. But instead of just making it, uh, about uh, heroic, I think is the mechanic. Um, I would like to see more variation where it's like, okay, this time we have Brimaz. All right, sweet. We have a three, four for three with like this interesting ability, of making cats when it attacks or blocks. And like this other time, we're going to have maybe a creature with an activated ability. That's uh, pretty sweet. And uh, maybe another one that has an ability that you sacrifice it for some effect or some like large doom traveler type card. When it dies, you get token, a token or tokens. So that then you have some play. If the opponents are playing a lot of removal spells, you have ways to gain advantage that way. So I like I I hope that we come back to that where the the white creatures are sort of have a lot of things going on and there's a lot jam packed into the small white creature because that was kind of part of the identity from the beginning and I would like to see a lot of that play out more um, in future design. Yeah, I agree. I think that <laughs> definitely that value feeling that white has as a color identity. We're missing that. I mean, these these creatures are getting a little boring. They're getting a little underpowered. And uh, I understand where, I don't know, maybe Watsi is trying to make other colors more interesting as well. But like gaining life and having first strike and vigilance just isn't enough these days. It's part of it. I I like those things, but I like to also have other things as well. Craig, of all of the abilities in the white color identity, exiling creatures has always been a mainstay. So Swords to Plowshares is quite a good card. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, that's actually my my all-time favorite card. 
Uh, my second favorite is Voice of Resurgence, but my favorite is Swords to Plowshares. I feel like it really encapsulates uh, what I like to do in Magic. It's just a very cheap, efficient, it's actually the best creature removal spell ever printed. And it was printed in the very first set, Alpha. And so it's kind of always been around and it's always been the best. That's just sort of a card that I, I love to play. Um, it's very efficient at what it does. And you can play it in sort of any type of deck, whether you're a control deck or an aggro deck. And it's just, you can use it to, to save your own life total against a burn deck, like killing your own creature. You can use it on the opponent's creature to get rid of, you know, whatever their problematic creature is. It's just a really elegant, really cool card. And I like the flavor of it, too. <laughs> yes, it's a really wonderful card. Um, they kind of... Uh modernized it with Path to Exile. <laughs> I mean, it, it's like kind of not the same. I mean, you're kind of ramping your opponent in that sense. Unless you have a Leonin Arbiter. Unless you have a Leonin Arbiter or your opponent has already fetched all their basics and then basically it's like a free exile spell. Yep. And it also just so happens that, Craig, you have a blog called Swords to Plowshares. Yes, I do. Uh, it's s2p.org, also Swords to Plowshares. Uh, it's not magic related, but it's uh, it's actually my faith-related blog where I talk about my uh, my belief in God and part of my ministry. So Swords to Plowshares, uh, I guess it has sort of the same origin as the actual magic card Swords to Plowshares, where it's a, a uh, prophecy from Isaiah where it says they will stop learning war and they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. So basically... Uh, speaking of a day where people stop hurting each other and killing each other and going to war with each other and instead devote the resources to growing food and feeding each other and being in fellowship. And so that's kind of the basis of my faith. And so I, I maintain a, a blog where I write articles and share scripture verses and things like that regarding that prophecy. That's great. What kind of things have you been writing about? So it's it's a lot of things, mostly trying to uh, understand the Bible, sort of teaching people things that you're not going to necessarily hear in you know local church. Uh, so a lot of things that are not sort of mainstream views, and it also has a lot to do with my animal advocacy. So it talks about scripture a lot, how it pertains to animals and how God's love for animals, something that a lot of people sort of gloss over or put in the fringe, whereas I'm sort of bringing it back to the center. Like, this is something important that's being overlooked. And so I focus on a lot of that, like how, how we're treating animals and whether this is consistent with the faith laid out in the Bible, things like that. And so it's sort of encouraging people not only to be in fellowship with each other, but also to include animals in our concern of a very healthy lifestyle because you are also a vegan. Moderately healthy. There's healthier <laughs> things I can do, I'm sure. <laughs> and it's not just a diet, but it's also a lifestyle of yours. Yeah, as, as I mentioned, it's uh, a big part of it is the animal advocacy part. I feel like sort of animals are one of the marginalized among us, and there's not a big voice for animals. And I feel like there's a better relationship that we as people could have toward animals and the things that we do are sort of destroying the planet, destroying animals, destroying a lot of things. There's a lot of things that we could be doing better. And I sort of try to, to show what we can be doing, what kind of world we could be living in if we choose to do things a little differently than the ways we've been taught from you know, our parents and the, the cultures and 
societies that we've grown up in that just is sort of within our power to change and make the world a different sort of place. Right. I think a lot of our generation, we've experienced such a technological growth in the last two, three decades. As a society, we're starting to become more aware of the fact that technology can't solve all of our problems. And it's making some of our problems more accelerated. And we are much more open to kind of like, what do we need to do as a society? And what do we need to do as a planet to overcome some of these environmental things? Are there any topics that you feel like uh, people need to know more about? Uh, I guess just sort of researching veganism, a lot of times people don't really think about what the impact of their actions are. It's kind of a hard thing to think about sometimes. We have so many other things going on in our lives. And so thinking about what, how our decisions impact the planet and the future of the planet is kind of a thing that it's hard to, to make a priority in your life. There's so many other things going on. But I feel like it's important for us to do that, to, to make it a priority and to really think about these things and to think, okay, well, wh- what sort of impact is my lifestyle having on the planet and on all the inhabitants of the planet, whether people or animals? Even if I don't make a huge impact on people's lives in that regard, I would like to you know, at least have people start thinking about that kind of thing. We're not just creating a world for our children, we're also creating a world for our children's children. Like They're going to teach their children what we teach them, and not just our biological children, but the next generation. So I'd like to kind of help steer the next generation in a direction that maybe proves more fruitful than some of the things that, that are currently being, being taught to them in the world. That is a wonderful mindset and philosophy. Thank you, Craig, for sharing that with us. And I will have links to Craig's writings as well as his blog, s2p.org, in the show notes at kitchentablemagic.org. We're going to take a quick break from our sponsors, and then we'll be back for more with Craig. Kitchen Table Magic is brought to you by the generous support of listeners like you. In the last three seasons, the show has been downloaded over 100,000 times and has reached the far corners of the world. Thank you so much for listening to the show. As you know, I give out gifts, little mementos from my interviews to my Patreon supporters. If you'd like to receive signed cards and other cool things, become a supporter at patreon.com slash kitchen table magic. Thank you so much. This episode of Kitchen Table Magic was brought to you by Paragon City Games. Kitchen Table Magic has been all about the origins of the game and the members of the community. And as a community, we've come a long way since the game first started. Apart from the kitchen table, the only other places in your local community to play Magic are at local game stores. And that's why places like Paragon City Games are so important for our community. At Paragon City Games, you'll find a spacious and clean showroom with lots of elbow room for weekly Magic events. You'll find thoughtful accessories like die-hard metal dice and handcrafted wooden deck boxes. You'll find a huge supply of legacy, modern, and standard staples, sealed product, and tabletop games. It's places like Paragon City Games with their friendly staff that allow local Magic communities to gather in. And if you can't make it there in person, be sure to watch their weekly stream at twitch.tv slash paragoncitygames. Remember to spread the love with a like on Facebook and a follow on Twitter for Paragon City Games. They have great online reviews that shows their commitment to excellent customer service for their player community. Kitchen Table Magic is sponsored by Card Kingdom. 
CardKingdom.com is a great place to shop for Magic the Gathering singles, sealed product, pre-constructed decks, and gaming accessories. They have a huge selection of Magic cards, from the latest sets to an ever-flowing supply of modern, commander, legacy, and standard staples. Card Kingdom also loves to buy Magic cards. They'll offer you cash or in-store credit for your Magic cards. And if you're new to Magic, you'll love playing any one of their pre-constructed battle decks built by Card Kingdom. Be sure to sign up for Card Kingdom's email newsletter to receive coupon codes, special deals, and deck techs by Magic Pro Chris Van Meter. Card Kingdom has so much to offer, fast shipping, great customer service, so I hope you'll check them out. And if you'd like to help support Kitchen Table Magic when shopping at Card Kingdom, please use our affiliate link. Just go to cardkingdom.com slash KTM when you shop. Okay, everyone, and we are back. Craig, I have some rapid fire questions for you. Are you ready? I am. Okay, here we go. Craig, rapid fire question number one. Of the five colors of magic, white, blue, black, red, and green, which is your favorite color and why? Definitely white because of the versatility and the fact that it has the best early drop creatures. If you would pair white with another color, what would you pair it with? Either green or blue, typically. Really any of the colors. I think green, white, uh, philosophically has kind of the, the closest identity for me, the Selesnia. I think blue is sort of second with Azorius, but probably green is the best. And uh, have you ever mixed all three together to be a, a Bont player? I have, to medium success. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, Craig, rapid-fire question number two. If you could change something about Magic the Gathering, what would it be? Probably the, the first thing that I would change is the, the financial cost to play. I feel like a lot of players are sort of priced out of playing the format that they would like to play or just being able to keep up with competitive Magic at all. If there's a way to somehow have a cheaper version of Magic that's accessible to more players, I think that, that would be very, very good for Magic's growth. But in terms of gameplay, uh, I would like to see fewer functional reprints. I think that there's a lot of cards that are very similar to cards that have already been printed once or twice. And I think that there's so much design space in each set that I would like to see a little bit more creativity and to where uh, we're not just feeling like it's the same thing just with a new mechanic kind of forced onto it, but like a lot of different cards interacting in various ways. So I'd like to see that. And I'd also like to see a little bit less deviation from the original color identities. Um, I'd like to kind of go back to some of those original things as it pertains to white, like giving them some of those original type answers, like Armageddon, uh, some, some way to deal with uh, big spell decks and also give them the the best early creatures like they already had they originally had in more ways of uh, protecting not just these four mana things that prevent some damage but just really like more more of those color identity type cards interesting do you think we're going to have some of that uh, harken back to the good old days in dominaria i hope so i'm looking forward to it <laughs> yeah i am too i first started playing in urza saga so poor dominaria <laughs> got destroyed and uh, now we're going back so i'm very excited i think everything got destroyed in urza saga <laughs> <laughs> okay craig rapid fire question number three if you could give something to every magic player what would it be i would like to give a lot of things but I would like to give encouragement to players who maybe feel like they can't be themselves for whatever reason. I would like to to inspire players to to be who they feel they want to be as a player. 
you know, if you want to play this crazy combo deck, maybe it's not super important for you if if you win all your matches. Maybe you're not a super hardcore spike. Um, that's okay. And if you always want to play green decks, or in my case, always want to play white decks, that's okay too. And if you wanna if you wanna play only booster draft, that's okay. If you only want to play your one constructed deck that you always play in the one format you like to play, that's great. You know, however magic fits into your life, magic is such a broad thing and such a game that you can that you can customize it and you can express yourself in whatever way you feel you want to express yourself. And so as me, like I, I like to play the decks that I like to play. And even if it's not always the best decision in a tournament, um, it's the deck that I like to play and I enjoy the most. And it's sort of who I am. And so that's one thing that I would like uh, players to gain from, from my career and things like that. Even if your, your life is very different than mine, you can also take courage in, in playing Magic the way you want to play it. That's really wonderful because I feel a lot of players sometimes they're like, oh, I got to play the best deck. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with being competitive and making sure you look at the meta and play the best deck. But uh, definitely sometimes when I'm at an event, I'm just like, oh, I just really want to play the deck that I want to (laughs) play. Yeah. Craig, rapid fire question number four. What do you see in the future of Magic the Gathering? So I see a, a larger digital presence as we're beginning to see now with uh, Magic Arena. And I think that we're also going to see more non-directly Wizards of the Coast-sponsored tournaments. So I think that the Star City circuit, um, Channel Fireball kind of had its own circuit. Now, I guess they're running all the Grand Prix. I feel like Hararuya is doing a big thing in Japan. Uh, I feel like these independent tournament circuits um, will probably be the future of Magic. I, I hope that the game continues to grow and that more and more players are interested in competitive Magic. And I think Modern as a format is great because it's not the sort of thing that, like Standard, where every year or two, your whole deck is is not legal anymore. So you you have to really stay on top of things. But I feel like Modern is a great format for just having a deck and you can play it years and years and years. And so everybody can kind of play their deck um, for a long time. So I feel like that format or maybe, you know, similar type formats, non-rotating, can be really attractive for players that want to continue playing, maybe not all the time, like every weekend, but play continuously, maybe once a month or something. And they can jump right back in and feel like they they haven't they don't have to relearn everything. Yeah, I know what you're saying. The new sets have to drive the storyline forward, has to allow the game to evolve into new mechanics. But sometimes it can be quite daunting to learn so many new things and learn so many different things just to keep up. Yeah, I mean, and that's fine. But I would like to also be things for players that don't have the time or or just for whatever reason aren't keeping up with everything like standard just being able to have that option to just play the older formats that they want to keep playing magic, just not be as heavily involved and kind of wax and wane in and out and be able to do that so that players don't just quit and sell all their cards to where it's like, you're still playing and you still have a game to come back to whenever you're comfortable coming back to it. And last Craig, do you have any asks or requests of the listening audience? 
Well, um, <laughs> I guess now's the time to plug. My articles are on tcgplayer.com every Friday. That's where I sort of give you whatever whatever deck that I'm playing, and I sometimes give strategy advice. Now, well, always strategy advice, but uh, sometimes general strategy advice for just how to get better as a player. Other times it's how to read the metagame. Um, sometimes it's advice on uh, how to how to build decks with the new cards, things like that. So there's there's all kinds of things. I try to I try to pick topics that are very relevant to my readers. If you're interested in any of the things that you've heard in uh, this interview, you can. I, I have ten years of articles now. Um, a lot of the past articles you can you can find them all by clicking on my name. But uh, yeah, a lot of those are are still relevant and still able to to learn a lot from them. And then there's a new one every Friday. That's awesome. And I will have links in the show notes at kitchentablemagic.org so people can join up on Twitter and hang out with you online. And your Twitter handle is at brimaz for life So that's brimaz, the number four, life. Craig, I just wanted to thank you very much for everything that you do for the community. You have been a prolific writer, and you've also been a teacher and scholar of the game. You make the game more approachable. You've always got a great energy about you, a big smile on your face, and you're always so happy to help. From your faith about having such stewardship for the community, as well as your uh, education as a philosophy professional and a philosophy scholar, you're just a really awesome person. So I wanted to thank you very much for taking the time to share your insights with us and talk to us about your life, also the color identity white. So thank you so much, Craig, for everything that you do for Magic the Gathering. Uh, that's uh, that's a lot of nice things to say. I don't know if I I, I can live up to those, but uh, I guess when you told me you were doing a, a Wooberg series. I figure I can't let you do the color white without me being involved. So I wanted to make sure that I helped you out with this, <laughs> made an appearance. So as I was saying about what I would like to give to players, I think that you, you should just kind of play magic for whatever reason you want to play magic. And I think that we, we should also not only think about what we want to get out of magic, but also making magic as inviting as a community, as a game, as we can make it, so that everybody else can get out of magic what they want to get out of magic. For me, a large part of magic is expressing myself. Uh, I enjoy the challenge of deck building, the creative aspect of it. I like playing decks in tournaments, the challenge of uh, playing against an opponent. I, I enjoy the social aspect, making friends, traveling together, things like that. Uh, I think that it's very important to to think about how our actions affect other players and potential players. So I think that if the best way to play Magic is to be inviting toward other players. And that involves some small things and some larger things. We want to be inclusive. Uh, we also want to be mindful of how other people might be responding to, say, our criticisms uh, or our assumptions about them. So yeah, just uh, play Magic for how you want to play it. If somebody else wants to say, you should play this competitive deck because it's a better deck, or you should care more about winning, or you should play this format instead of this other format that you like playing, play Magic for whatever reason you want to play Magic. And try to be sympathetic with other people and allow them, encourage them to play Magic for the reasons they want to play Magic. And the more inviting we can be toward each other, the more all of us can get out of the game. So that's kind of what I would like you to take away from this. 
I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Craig. Go say hi to him on Twitter at Brimaz4Life. That's Brimaz, the number four, life. You can also check out Craig's magic strategy at tcgplayer.com. His own personal writings on scripture are at s2p.org. That's S, the number two, the letter P, dot org. I'll have all the links in the show notes at kitchentablemagic.org. Remember to stick around towards the end for a preview of the next episode. Thanks, everybody, for listening to this week's show. I'd like to take a moment to thank all of my Patreon supporters. Brian, Marcus, James L., Alex, Trevor, Caitlin, Aaron M., Neil, James G., Aaron C., Corey, Chad, Logan S., The Magic Man Sam, Jesse, Ben, Nick, Eternal Dirtles, Matthias, Charlie, Geraint, Scryfall, Matt, Ian, Prescovi, Ryan, Carl, and Logan F. Listeners, your financial contribution goes to making the show better and helps keep it running by paying for audio equipment, software, and server costs. If you'd like to get special gifts from my interviews, become a supporter at patreon.com slash kitchen table magic. Now that I've partnered with Card Kingdom, there's a new way to support the show. When you shop at Card Kingdom, just use my affiliate link, cardkingdom.com slash KTM. A big thank you again to all of my Patreon supporters, past, present, and future. Your support of Kitchen Table Magic allows me to share stories about the amazing people in the Magic the Gathering community with the world. I've created a new YouTube channel called PlayMTG. It's an upbeat, fast-paced new YouTube channel featuring deck techs from the pros, learn-to-play tutorials, level-up advice, card discussion, MTG community news, and more. Just go to youtube.com slash C slash PlayMTG. You'll find links to the PlayMTG YouTube channel on facebook.com slash PlayMTG. And be sure to follow the show on Twitter at Play underscore MTG. I'm looking forward to creating new video content, and I've got some cool collaborations in the works please be sure to subscribe to Kitchen Table Magic on Apple Podcasts. And if you love the show, please leave us a review. It really helps other people find this podcast. Kitchen Table Magic is also on Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, Hipsters of the Coast, and mtgcast.com. Follow the show on Twitter at KTM Podcast, where you'll find me tweet memes. Yeah, mostly memes. The show is also on Facebook.com slash Kitchen Table Magic Podcast. All of the show notes are at kitchentablemagic.org. Remember to listen to past episodes and be sure to share KTM with a friend. Coming up on the next episode of Kitchen Table Magic, the most responses I've gotten from my guests when asked, which is your favorite color, has been blue. Why is that? Blue is tricky. Blue likes to counter your spells. Blue wants to draw cards. Blue has dorky creatures that are unblockable and fly and will only slap you in the face for two. Blue may just say nope, more than videos of spiders crawling out of bananas. There's more salt in a blue mage than the water surrounding their island. Jace, Magic's protagonist planeswalker, is blue, and in his final form, Jace the Mind Sculptor is better than all. The correct way to spell blue is B-L-O-O. What makes blue so derpy, salty, and wind conditionless as it is powerful? Join me and special guests for part two of our five-part series on Wooburg where we talk about Magic's favorite color to play and hate on, blue, all on the next episode of Kitchen Table Magic.